Our scripture this morning is found from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 29 in the Bible in front of you in the pew. That's on page 989. And if you're able, would you stand in honor of God's word this morning? But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said to them, Unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands, and I put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Two weeks ago, we began a new sermon series called Thank You, Martin Luther. And Hannah Coe, our pastor of children and families, did an excellent job introducing us to German monk Martin Luther, who 500 years ago, on October 31st, posted the first post-it note that we know of on the door, the Wittenberg door. And this note was asking for reforms in a few areas, the issuing of indulgences and limiting papal pope's authority. Luther, Luther's famous posting of his 95 theses is, started, is often credited with starting or launching the Protestant Reformation, the 16th century movement, the economic, social, political, religious um, shift that went through and really uh, dismantled Catholic Europe during that time. But it really was just a spark a spark that fell on an already parched and dry land that was full of discontent and displeasure with the church and religion. You see, the church was very corrupt at that time, and the people were tired of the greed and the abuse of political power that spilled over into every aspect of their life. So the disruption that was sparked by Luther and the other leaders, not just him but others, um, really triggered a lot of things like war and persecution and even a counter-reformation. And it was really a very devastating 130-plus year journey that resulted in some necessary changes, both religious-wise and political-wise. Luther's posting uh, was one moment among many that started the Reformation, and that changed even today how we interact with God and with Scripture. So I would like to be the first to admit this morning that I had no clue it was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And I'm a Protestant pastor, and I also used to teach history, so sat on a couple of accounts. But it wasn't in my calendar, and the nice folks at Apple hadn't listed it as one of the holidays this year. And there's no Hallmark line of cards for Martin Luther, and no Martin Luther party hats or pin the paper on the Wittenberg door at Party City. So I'm sharing all of that this morning so that you, too, can feel okay in admitting that you have forgotten yet another anniversary. 
There's grace enough for all of us here this morning. It was actually our Ukrainian brothers that reminded me of this anniversary. Uh, It's a very big deal over there. And when I was there in June, all the plans had already started and the festivities were going for this big anniversary. And so I suggested to them the idea of pinning the, the note on the Wittenberg door kind of thing for the parties. And I think I told them it would go over very well. Um, so we'll see if they, they initiate that one. The point of our sermon series really isn't a history lesson. And it's really not about Martin Luther. It's about confessing what we believe to be truth in a world that is desperate for, but also leery of truth. And so our culture is really not so different than what Martin Luther was experiencing in some ways. They were very skeptical of the church, and we find that today, that people are very skeptical and doubting and have discontent with the church, and some of that is deserved. And um, there's a lot of skepticism just in our world in general. But that doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's actually skepticism that led to Martin Luther's posting of these Reforms that led to a very necessary and wonderful change. But let's define skepticism this morning before we begin, because I think in the words of Inigo Monteo from The Princess Bride, you keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. Most of us treat the idea of skepticism as something negative um, or a weakness or a flaw. Like you say to someone, you're such a skeptic, like, oh, you're so weak that you can't believe. The definition of it simply means the attitude of doubting knowledge claims set forth in various areas. So the idea of doubting knowledge claims set forth in various areas. So, when you see an infomercial with a lady who looks like she's had three espressos already with extra shots of espresso telling you that if you hold this weight that shakes all on its own in your hand, you could lose 30 pounds in three days... When you see that infomercial and your brain says, wait, I am doubting that knowledge claim, that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, you just saved yourself three easy installments of $29.99 and a whole bunch of disappointment. Or if your teenage daughter comes home and says to you, I have a new boyfriend, and he's the one. And then you meet the, the boy, and it is her boyfriend, That knowledge claim checks out for now. But the second part about him being the one, well, you're seriously doubting that knowledge claim, aren't you? So being a skeptic isn't necessarily a bad thing or a weakness or a lack of intelligence. A skeptic is not the same as an atheist, a humanist, or someone who is anti-Christianity. It can be quite the opposite, in fact. I understand this because my Myers-Briggs personality type is INFJ. Now, we could do a whole sermon series on Myers-Briggs and personality tests, but basically one of the descriptors of my personality is there's something rotten in Denmark. I'm naturally a skeptic. I I need to know the story behind the story behind the story because I'm pretty sure there is one. Um, I like to understand things. I want to know the why, not just what you're telling me. And it's not because I don't want to believe or don't believe. It's simply that I place a high value on truth and trust. And I, I want to make sure that I understand. So this is why I really feel for Thomas in our passage today. Poor, doubting Thomas. 
Have you ever been given a nickname that you hated? I asked this question on Facebook. Some of you responded, and some of you wouldn't tell me, Ken Satterfield. So, have you ever been given a nickname that you didn't like, that came at a point in your life because one little weak moment or, or because of a mistake you made or any, nothing that you had control over, and then forever, or at least grade school and high school, you were stuck with this nickname? Thomas, forever known as Doubting Thomas. Even in our secular culture, you'll hear people say, don't be such a doubting Thomas, and they have no clue who Thomas even is. Thomas was inquisitive. Thomas was a thinker. Thomas was skeptical. It's not so much that Thomas doubted the resurrection, but that he needed a personal encounter with Jesus for him to truly believe, to to believe all the way. So it might be helpful to think of Thomas more as the inquisitive Thomas, the thinker Thomas, pragmatic Thomas, because of all the biases we have towards the word doubt. A few chapters earlier from our text, in chapter 14, we see Thomas in another time with Jesus in which he says, uh, Jesus is telling them, I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you, a place in my father's house. And it is Thomas who raises his hand and says, "Um, Jesus, like, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how are we going to know how to get there? It's not that he's questioning that Jesus is going to do what he says he's going to do. If you listen to the question, he's asking, what, but I need the details. Like, how are we supposed to know that if we don't know? He is just naturally inquisitive and needs to know things in order to fully believe. I'm saying all of this because I really want us to give Thomas a second chance this morning. Doesn't everybody deserve a second chance? So what if this morning we could just be a little more understanding of Thomas, maybe a little less judgy of Thomas the twin, Thomas the apostle, Thomas the church planter, Thomas the one who's bold enough to ask questions because he cares enough to ask that Thomas. You see, if you're afraid of roller coasters, um, you really don't want anybody riding roller coasters. Like, you just do not feel safe unless everybody is on the ground with you. We tend to project our fears. So if we are not comfortable with doubts ourselves, or if we view questions as a weakness, we tend to also project that onto others. And so the more that we feel that, the more we are not going to allow others to ask questions or to express doubts. And honestly, our world needs safe places where we can express doubts and ask questions. So I want us to get back to the setting of today's passage, because we kind of jump in the middle of a story with today's scripture. And I I want us to give Thomas a chance to clarify some things. And I also want us to hear it again. Some of us are very familiar with the story, and the more that you hear something, the less we we tend to hear, right? So let's look at it again, and just look at the context. Our gospel passage picks up today, after Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb seen the stone rolled away, went and told the disciples, went back to the tomb, met the gardener, who turns out to be Jesus. She then goes back to and told the disciples what Jesus had told her. So the disciples had essentially been hiding out somewhere and waiting. Um, They didn't know what to think about the fact that the stone had been rolled away and Jesus' body was gone. Um, They were still reeling from all that had happened in just a few days trying to figure things out, probably afraid of what was going on, if the fate that met Jesus would be the same fate that they would experience. And so they hid and they waited 
waited for things to kind of die down. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus suddenly appears in the room to the disciples. Well, all the disciples, except for Thomas. Thomas isn't there. The Bible doesn't tell us where Thomas is. Maybe he was out getting a pizza for everybody. Maybe Thomas was out telling people of all that Jesus had taught him. We never think that one because we've always been etched in our mind that Thomas is the weak one. Maybe he was out telling people. Scripture doesn't say where he was. It just simply says that he wasn't there. So I want you just to picture the scene when Thomas returns with eight large single-topping pizzas. He walks in the room, and the disciples are like, you tell him. No, no, you tell him. Tell him just what happened, why he's gone. Thomas, you may want to sit down. And then they proceed to tell him that Jesus appeared to them. And then Thomas utters the, the line that forever has labeled him, the doubter. He says, unless I see the nail holes and I put my finger in the nail holes and I put my fingers in his side, I I will not believe. Thomas is skeptical. I mean, he knows these disciples, these brothers. They have been through all kinds of things, miracles, trials, the last three years with Jesus. They have walked through all kinds of things. I feel like Thomas would probably know when they're lying or knows how to tell their tells. They've been through a lot together. But this, what they're saying is too important. Thomas wants to see for himself what they've claimed to see. Thomas just did what any of us would do, right? Just what any of us would would say or ask, probably. He wanted to be able to see Jesus for himself with his own eyes. How many of us have ever said that? You know, I believe in Jesus, but it would sure be nice to see Jesus in person. We're holding both belief and the question and the wondering in the same hands. So, Thomas had to wait. Now, we had to skip, we skip over that. Scripture doesn't, doesn't go into any detail about that. It's just like, Thomas asked that question and then a week later, something else happens. But I want us to sit in the space there for a little bit and think about what that week might have been like. I mean, if you had seen the risen Christ, you would be talking about it all the time, Right? I imagine the disciples are, the scripture actually tells us they were so, you know, enthused because of what they had seen, their encounter with Jesus. So many emotions and and those things throughout the week of what they've said. And so I've often wondered, like, how did they deal with that? I mean, did they, like, talk about it with each other? And then when Thomas walked into the room, they just got kind of quiet out of, like, sympathy or sensitivity? Or did they talk the whole time to Thomas about who we saw? Did Thomas ever storm out, run out of the place, like, enough, you know, like, you're rubbing my face in it. Like, I just don't understand or know what that week was like, but I imagine it was really hard. There are a couple of things that I know from that space. Number one is that even though the, G- the disciples had seen Jesus and had experienced him, they still waited with Thomas. A week later, they're still together. They waited with him in that space, even though they believed and they knew They didn't abandon him in his unbelief. And the second thing I know, which is the exciting thing, is that Jesus does show up again. And this time, Thomas was there. So although the doors were shut and locked, Jesus appeared and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he looks at Thomas, it says. He focuses his attention on Thomas. Finally, 
after a whole week of waiting, a whole week of waiting and wondering, sitting alone with his doubt, trying to understand why Jesus would come and, and show himself to the other disciples but not him, he gets his moment. Jesus has arrived, and he brings peace to him. And he brings to Thomas exactly what Thomas needed in order to believe. It says that he offered him to touch his hands and to place his hand in their side. And scripture doesn't tell us that he did that or not. Some scholars believe he did, some don't. Regardless, when he experienced Christ and he heard him speak, Thomas knew, this is my Lord and my master. So Jesus then responds to him, don't be unbelieving, but rather believe, have faith. You will believe because you have seen But there will be others who will believe who have not seen. Others like you and like me. We haven't had that firsthand experience. We haven't had the invitation to place our hands in the nail scars or the side. Yet most of us sit here believing and devoted to Jesus. And a lot of us also sit here at the same time with moments of doubts. So, while we have these doubts, we wait, like Thomas waited that week. And sometimes we wait for days, and sometimes weeks, and sometimes years. We wait with our doubts and with our questions. But at some point, Jesus shows up, and he looks at us, and he says, Peace be with you. Have you ever imagined what it would be like for Jesus to just walk in the room or appear? Like what it would feel like, what you would feel if you saw the risen Christ. This has happened to me. Let me tell you about it. About 20 years ago, I was a youth worker here before I was ever the youth pastor. And I had a a small group of high school girls. And we were meeting one night in the parlor right over in the back corner for our Bible study. And while we were meeting in there... The adult choir and orchestra was in here rehearsing for the the Easter cantata. And the Easter cantata had some drama pieces to it. And so the youth pastor before me was playing the part of Jesus. And the night we had our Bible study was the dress rehearsal. So I was in the parlor and the door was closed. It wasn't locked. This isn't that awesome of a story, okay? We were sitting in there. The door was closed and the door opened and in walked Jesus. Or the youth pastor dressed up as Jesus. My immediate reaction to seeing Jesus was a mixture of great love and great shame. I can remember it like it was yesterday. I was so conflicted. At one point, I wanted to run to him, but at the same time, I wanted to run away from him. If you had had me guess what my immediate reaction would be to seeing the risen Christ, the one I know who loves me so, uh, the latter of the two emotions would not have been my guess, the shame emotion. And it caught me off guard enough that I had to sit with it and figure out where did that come from. You see, at different times in my life, I've experienced doubt and will continue to. I doubt some of the teachings. I doubt some of the biblical stories sometimes. It's part of the faith journey. But there's one knowledge claim that I have struggled to believe the most, and it's this. 
that I am deeply loved by God. And there is nothing I can do to earn that or deserve that. He loves me. This nagging doubt was what caused that moment of shame for me when Jesus came through my door. That there in the presence of Jesus, who I know loves me deeply, yet I feel like I'm so unworthy of that love. I mean, surely when he looks at me, all he can see is how I failed him, how I haven't been faithful, how I've disappointed him. I want you to hear that I absolutely believe and the unending grace and unconditional love of God for you and for me. But that doesn't mean that some days I don't doubt it. That there's some days that I don't trust it in some moments. That I don't need Jesus to show up in the parlor in a costume of himself to help my unbelief. Most mornings I pray, God, I am your beloved. Help me to believe it today. A lot of times it's both a statement and a question. God, I am your beloved. Right? Right. I am your beloved. You have said it is so. Help me in my unbelief. And based on a multitude of conversations with people and the plethora of songs and books and stories about God's love and grace, I know I'm not alone in that. Thomas is not the only one who believes in Jesus while at the same time waits with doubts and fears. So what can we learn this morning about confessing Christ in a skeptical culture? I think there's three things from Thomas's story. The first is that we're sometimes Thomas. Sometimes we feel like we've missed Jesus when others have experienced him, and we sit with our doubts and our fears, and we wait for Jesus to show up again. Where are we struggling to trust the promises of God this morning? Do we question that God loves us the way that God has said he'll love us? When things are dark and we can't see the next step, do we doubt God's faithfulness to us? It has been said that the most powerful words you can say to someone when they're going through a difficult time is, you too, meaning that we're not alone in this. We must embrace our own fears of doubts and questions and learn to be comfortable with them in order to be a faith family that is safe for others to come and ask questions. May we extend grace to ourselves and to others the way Christ extended grace to Thomas and to us today. The second thing is that we're sometimes the disciples. Sometimes we feel like the disciples, that we've had an experience with Christ and the Holy Spirit is alive and at work in our lives. We rejoice in those moments and we must confess those moments. Later on in chapter 20, the last two verses after our passage this morning, it says that Jesus provided far more God-revealing signs than are written down in this book. These are written down, like the one about Thomas. These are written down so you will believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And in the act of believing, have real and eternal life in the way he personally revealed it. The author of John is clear in stating that the purpose of sharing Thomas' story and stuff is so that you will believe these firsthand accounts of the risen Christ who appeared and who still appears today. And to me, that's the third truth and the greatest probably news of the whole thing is that God, Jesus, shows up. He shows up, and he brings them peace. 
he encourages Thomas in his unbelief. He isn't irritated. He isn't angry. He doesn't dismiss him. He loves him, and he reaches out to him just in the way that Thomas needed him to. And Jesus continues to reach out and show up today in our lives and in the hidden places where we sometimes camp out. And he says to you, peace be with you. Do not not believe, but believe. Believe. 